30 seconds. One time for the underdog. One time for the underdog. Ignition sequence start. Let me see you put them up. Reach the sky, touch the stars up above. Cause it's one time for the underdog. I'm Patrick Bedev, your host of ITM, and today I sit down with Captain Duncan Smith, former Navy SEAL commander, and he shares the biggest threats we have today as well as the future U.S. military. Duncan, appreciate you for coming out. Pat, thank you for having me. Yeah, so, so we're talking off camera, and I, I kind of wanted to stop our conversation because I know some of the similarities we have. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, family, San Fernando Valley, I'm San Fernando Valley, you know, Woodland Hills, Woodland Hills, Morgan Stanley, Morgan Stanley, and the part I wanted to go from is, you go to Morgan Stanley Dean Witter, and uh, I believe you sit in the Valley, then you go in, in LA, then you go work at San Diego as Morgan Stanley Dean Witter advisor. Mm -hmm. When do you all of a sudden say, I want to go be a Navy SEAL? I always had the inkling to do something a little different, and I, I was a very you know, average suburban kid, but I always would push myself and find different endeavors that I thought made me better, more well-rounded. Um, and so, while I was in high school, there was a Marine Corps colonel who lived down the street, uh, Colonel Pilatus, and he told me about a Marine Corps program called Devil Pups, and I went to that, and it was during the Vietnam War. Largely, it was kids from the inner city. I was one of the few white suburb kids who went to this program. I was 14, lied about my age. You're supposed to be 15, 16, 17. And uh, a lot of these kids were sent to this program as an alternative towards incarceration or some other things, a chance to kind of demonstrate themselves and learn some citizenship. I went and I thought, man, I'm the smallest, skinniest guy here. I'm 120 pounds. And what I discovered over those 10 days with the Marines was that it's all about focus, right? If you're willing to take that foot off, you know, step off that 35-foot mm -hmm. dive tower, or if you're willing to race up the hill, Old Smoky on Camp Pendleton, just stick to itness can pay huge dividends. And so uh, became stronger, became a little more mentally focused in the military as a pathway for me. Was considering the Forest Service becoming a ranger in the outdoors or, you know, I, I joke, Peace Corps, Marine Corps, everyone's looking for a mission. And then I, um, I applied to the Marine Corps for an ROTC scholarship coming out of high school. Went to a uh, Catholic prep school in the Valley and uh, no one had ever gone to a service academy. I thought about doing that, but I kind of found out on my own about ROTC. Applied. My thinking at that time was that the Marines really kind of were the SEALs. Went to school at University of Southern California, did two years as a Marine ROTC midshipman. And in the summer, the ROTC program is crafted in such a way that you get exposed to the fleet. And so my first midshipman cruise was to the Mediterranean. And I was there with the Marines in, on a helicopter carrier, but there were these other guys. And these other guys had longer hair. Uh, they were incredibly fit. They didn't all wear the exact same thing. And I was in the hangar bay doing rope climbs, hangar bay being kind of a mini airport hangar mm -hmm. that, that happens to be on a carrier. And I was doing rope climbs, and I'd get off the rope, and I'd look at my watch, I'd wait 30 seconds, I'd climb again, wait 30 seconds, I'd do it to failure. And this guy with long hair, uh, looked like sort of a business executive, came up, and he said, hey, for a swabby, you're in pretty good shape. And I kind of braced up and stood a little bit of attention. I said, oh, sir, I'm not a swabby. Uh, I'm a United States Marine Corps, NROTC, you know, Marine Option Midshipman. So yeah, right. Uh, listen, don't call me sir. And if you like to work out, myself and some, some teammates are gonna be here tomorrow morning. Uh, you ought to join us. What time's that? 5 a.m. Okay, I'll try that. Showed up at 5 a.m. Um, all these guys were quiet, pretty humble, but ribbing each other, a good sense of humor, pushing each other a bit, and the toughest workout I'd ever seen. And I had been a, what's called a 300 PFT, or meaning mm, that's I'd- That's perfect score. Yeah, I'd maxed the Marine Corps physical yeah. fitness test. 
with these guys, I was dying. And the workout went well over an hour. Um, calisthenics, not a lot of equipment required, but it was bone crushing. Showed up the next day, and this person who I later found out was a lieutenant said, huh, you're the first midshipman to come back a second time. And my abs were, you know, just torn up by a ton of lactic acid. Worked out with them several times that week. And when these guys were, when we pulled in to, I want to say Marseille, uh, we were going to finish the cruise and row to Spain. We were going to, we were pulling into Marseille and he and his group of folks who actually were SEALs, an underwater demolition team from the East Coast, a platoon, um, they said, hey, Smith, hey, sir, don't call me sir. Um, you want to see what we're going to be doing? I said, yeah, absolutely. And he pulls out a map, and on this map, he says, well, there's this thing called Mont Blanc. And recreational hikers say it takes a week to hike around Mont Blanc in France. We're going to try to do a day and night in 48 hours. And then we're going to go over, and we're going to hit these peaks in the Pyrenees. And I'm thinking, this is awesome. I said, but sir, here's my concern. Don't call me sir. Right, sorry. Here's my concern. What are you going to do when you get home? I mean, I don't know if you have a family, but you're using all your leave, all your vacation now doing this stuff. I said, well, what do you mean? So, well, how are you going to go mountain climbing and hiking and all over Europe? I said, Smith, this is training. This is what we do. This isn't leave. So a big light bulb came over to my head, and I thought, man, this is, this is what special, op special operations training is about. I want a part of this. So I went back to school talked to the Marine Corps officer instructor, and at that time in the Marine Corps, if you wanted to do Marine Corps reconnaissance, it was two years out of your career. Um, it was very rare to get a second assignment in recon, and it was impossible to do a career. That has changed more recently with the creation of MARSOC, the Marine Corps Special Operations Command. But at that time, that's what it was. So I looked at What year is this at this? Is this so this is just post-Vietnam. So I graduated from USC in 1981. So this is 1977. And the military was not terribly popular in the U.S. at the time. So I really respected this colonel. He was an amazing leader, an amazing man, Vietnam veteran. And um, you know, he counseled me. He said, look, if you're really interested in the SEALs, I will support you for that. We looked at it. It would have added quite a bit of time to my college career. I would have had to have gone back and taken essentially a year of calculus, a year of physics. And um, he said, you know, you could always do OCS. So basically, I, I graduated from USC. I lost the ROTC scholarship when I chose to leave the program. So I worked in the dorms as what's called a resident advisor at USC, which was, by the way, a great leadership experience. Um, and then I also later worked in a low-income HUD Section 8 low-income housing unit. And I learned a lot there that helped me later in life in terms of working, understanding you know, diversity and different people's oh, perspective. Yeah. And then um, I had four sisters. So I'm a little brother. They were all at real liberal schools. They were at UC Berkeley. All older than you? Or yeah, yeah. And they're all UC Berkeley? Well, one's at UC Berkeley, one's at Stanford, one's at Santa Barbara, one's at Santa Clara. And their whole thing is, hey, we've known you all your life. You just need adventure. Don't join the military. So I thought, well, maybe they're right. You know, there's an opportunity to work, get a work permit in New Zealand, Australia, you know, England. So I applied for a work permit in New Zealand, got it, spent a year working on, on fishing boats in New Zealand, construction, a sheep shearing gang, did construction in Australia, bought a bike, and then rode all through New Zealand back when no one was doing it. Came back a year later, <laughs> left, left with about 800 bucks, came back with about $1,200, and um, then put on a necktie. I thought, okay, that's my adventure. You know, they're probably right. I probably got that out of my system. And that trip was amazing, right? Riding down the west coast of the South Island of New Zealand, 
and uh, you know it's getting dark. You pull into uh, you pull into an orchard or a shearing station at night. You go to bed. You get up early, start riding again. And uh, when I put on a necktie, I applied to several finance firms. Um, they're not really interested in having a young guy work there, unless you can really demonstrate that you've got the the finance background, the understanding, the tenacity, because there's a large sales component, and the personality, the the hard work ethic. And got a couple good offers, and the one I chose was to go with what is now Morgan Stanley, was then Dean Witter. And so I worked there, worked in LA, and then worked in San Diego. And I enjoyed what I did, but I also sat there and said, I'm 23 years old. I could be doing this easily when I'm 40. If I'm ever gonna do this SEAL thing, now's the time. And so I, after working in LA, transferring to San Diego, I applied to Navy Officer Candidate School they tell you what are your top three choices and I wrote seal 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 and they're like no top three choices means you know what's the first one give sure. us an alternate yes. said look that's all I want to do um, got selected went to OCS when I got selected I, I quit my job at Morgan Stanley still love finance um, but then joined the Navy at that point and spent basically five years on active duty seal team one seal team five went through buds basic underwater demolition seal training with class 137 and, and really kind of compounded what I'd learned as a 14-year-old doing the Marine Corps thing, you know, listening to people, working with people, applying yourself, learning how to learn, getting uncomfortable with being, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's the stock and trade of making it through SEAL training. And I was the average kid from the suburbs, but my swim buddy and I, Mike, uh, were, the, were the only two as a swim pair that started together before training and finished all the way through training as a pair. My bow crew won Hell Week, and it's because we had just great guys who bonded together. You uh, won Hell Week. Yeah, our bow crew of seven was the bow crew that won Hell Week. It was a graded evolution at that point in time. And uh, it, was, it was one of those things where I felt like, hey, there's this secret sauce, this discovery about how to work with people, how to push myself, how to tackle any problem, you know, figure things out um, that I think is inherent in the SEAL teams, and it's taught in a less than obvious way, probably a very subtle way, but everyone who makes it through training, I think has that, that tool set. So did it for uh, finished training, um, worked in the teams, finished off uh, at SEAL Team 5, applied to grad school, which was really common. Back then, um, the, the heart and soul of being a SEAL was in the platoons. I applied to grad school at UCLA, stayed in the reserve because I didn't want to lose that military affiliation and uh, at 9-11 got recalled back to active duty and served those next 17 years. So, so that's 86 when you graduate butts? What, what Correct. 86 you graduate mm -hmm. butts, okay. So uh, are you closer to mom or dad? Well, dad's deceased, but dad was a World War II guy. So he grew up without a dad. Um, and he, as a 17-year-old, joined the Navy in World War II, and then the Navy became his family in a way, and he went to college at Vanderbilt, studied electrical engineering on the Navy's dime, and then later stayed in the reserves, which is kind of where I got that idea. And then he, uh, he got commissioned during the Korean War, and then after that went to Stanford to get his master's in, in electrical engineering. Smart guy, I think he struggled with doing you know, the right thing, more a worker bee, and I think he, what I think I learned from his example is I don't want to do one thing all my life, and SEAL teams are the definition of doing something new and different every day, if not at a minimum every two years. Um, but I think he, he was one of those folks that you knew when you grew up, you know, friends of your dad, friends of yours whose dads were engineers in the aerospace industry. So that's what he did. And he, um, so he died probably about uh, eight years ago. And Sorry to hear that. Well, it's, it's how it goes. And, and my mom, 
who, yeah, forbid me from playing football, dri riding a motorcycle, or having guns. What's the story behind that? Well, she, she, I guess in a way, football, she might have been ahead of her time, but uh, yeah, she didn't want to see really, me get though, injured. Really, think about it. Like right now, they say the, the, the parents of making $150,000 or more parents, they are 60% less likely to encourage their kids to play football than, than middle America. So Interesting. that's what, when she's saying that at that time, it's very surprising for her to say, what was her processing to say, I don't want you to play football? She actually had, um, she had a good friend um, whose son was riding motorcycles recreationally and he had a spinal cord injury. Um, he was, his life changed dramatically, uh, but then he worked to the point where he could drive a van that was controlled with his hands, and then he tried to kill himself by driving into a wall. So I think she was probably, you know, a lot of daughters, probably, you know, I think her own experience in, in World War II as a, as a female, like a lot of Americans lived in that time, mm -hmm. you know, probably had a propensity to want her kid to avoid danger. Um, as far as it related to the SEAL thing, she had no idea what a SEAL was. No one did back then. So she thought I was probably a marine biologist or something. Yeah, because SEAL is, is, is uh, uh, early 60s is when it got started, right? A lot of people right. think it's been on for a long time. So if it's 60s, then you're in 77, you're still on 77, you're in high school, or 77, you're going to the Marines. So at 23, 82, so it's not like it's been around that long where it's not been commercial. It's not, yeah. is, is an 82, is Navy SEAL a public thing like it is today or no? It was not well known. And I came in in 85, and, and it was really hard to find information out about it. To speak to a SEAL was almost and impossible. That's right. 86 is when you graduated, you said. Uh, Correct. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. And, and the SEAL teams really grew up out of World War II, three different organizations. The Underwater Demolition Teams, UDT, the Scouts and Raiders, um, and then the NCDUs, the Naval Combat Demolition Units. And they really were formed into one organization in January 1962 called the SEAL Team, SEAL Team 1 on the East Coast, excuse me, West Coast, SEAL Team 2 on the East Coast. And when those were created, that really kind of um, became an identifiable brand. The Trident was created. Prior to that, UDT guys wore gold master parachutist wings, and that was about it, or a bubble maker, a, a dive pin. So even when the SEALs formally existed as they were, they weren't well known. And, and they kind of liked it that way, to be honest with you. When did it become so publicized? When did it become, uh, you know, to the point where everybody kind of knew what a Navy SEAL was, where, hey, I want to be a Navy SEAL. Did, was that intentional or was that accidental? I, I think a couple things happened. I think there was a period of time where uh, some folks wrote some books that are controversial, some which I think would have been better left unwritten, that sort of turn SEALs into superheroes. And the reality is, as you look at the SEAL ethos, it's a common man with an uncommon desire to succeed. So as you look at some of these books, um, you know, they may, they may talk a little bit about things, you know, largely they're accurate, but they do talk about certain things in a way that makes it sound like they're Jason Bourne meets, you mm -hmm. know, The Rock, right? Um, and the reality is it's, it's average guys who are just ready to really drive themselves, who are smart, and trained to the task, and then have a really well-developed mentoring process, mechanism within the organization. I think we became really well-known, the Charlie Sheen movie, uh, which was made in 88, um, that made us more well-known. Um, I think a lot of the books, uh, Rogue Warrior and others, kind of glamorized the SEALs in a, in a bit of a way. Um, 
But then really, and, and I'm sometimes pointed to as a guy who advanced, some people will say negatively, I would argue otherwise, advanced the public's perception of SEALs. We had never filled a class in our history, back to World War II. There had never been a UDT or a BUDS, you know, basic underwater demolition and SEAL training class that was full to capacity. In 2005, every, every year the military is very good at doing kind of an internal look, and it's called the QDR, Quadrennial Defense Review. And it's the Secretary of Defense, the President via the Secretary of Defense, puts out a mandate that all the branches look hard at themselves and figure out what their shortfalls are. In 2005, 2006, we'd been at war in Afghanistan and Iraq, and those wars were really calling upon and highlighting the success of Special Operations Forces. Green Berets, Rangers, a lot of the Tier 1 forces, um, SEAL teams. And it was agreed upon across the board that there was a 15% shortfall in Manning. So for the SEAL teams that at that time had about 1,700 enlisted SEALs, the notion was we had to add 500 new SEALs to our ranks. If you've ever been to a dry cleaners and you've seen that, that triangle on the wall where it says cheap, fast, good, pick two, you can't have it all, we sort of face something similar. You know, for us it was have, have the uh, combat competency that we've enjoyed since Vietnam, stay at the cutting edge of proficiency, grow by 500, stay in the shadows. And for us, we had to throw one of those out and staying in the shadows was something we could no longer afford to do. This is 0506. 0506. And so we created something called the, the Recruiting Directorate. It's, it's now called the Scout Team, but the Naval Special Warfare or SEAL Recruiting Directorate. And the first thing I did, I was placed in charge of it. The first thing I did with a mandate from the Admiral was, hey, let's, let's do an internal look. You could talk to any SEAL, just like you could talk to anyone in any business and say, hey, you're successful, you're here, you're functioning in this role. Uh, what's the secret? How do we find more people like you? And everyone commonly will be a little bit overly inclined to say, well, I grew up as a skateboarder, or I grew up as a ski bomb, or I was a bow hunter or a wrestler. I played high school football. And they tend to think that's the solution. And so we got very analytical with it. And I'd already, I'd already been, remember, back at UCLA, got my MBA, and so I uh, had a finance background. And for things that seem subjective, I like to rely upon a quantifiable solution. And so we did an internal look. We put out what's called a, a UFER, it's an unfunded request, seeking money that was not budgeted to do a hands-off, unbiased study of what made successful SEALs. The winning bid was an was a, uh, ancillary element of the Gallup organization. We worked closely with them. And we looked at what the success traits were for people who make it through SEAL training. Now you gotta remember, Pat, someone who wants to see if they can make it through SEAL training is a very different beast than someone who wants to serve as a SEAL. Somebody who wants to make it through is very different than somebody who wants to be a Navy SEAL. Correct. So our whole marketing focus, which was driven largely by Navy recruiting, who was very much committed to helping us. They really wanted, they recognized that there was a presidential mandate to grow all the different branches of special operations. And so Navy recruiting was a great partner. Uh, but at that point in time, um, you know, the whole marketing focus, because we tried to, remember, remain in the shadows, um, we only focused in the public's optic with training. What happens in Coronado when you go through SEAL training? What is Hell Week like? What's it like to do the obstacle course? What happens out on San Clemente Island? And so that was, that was the view that we would allow people. But we also found it drew in a lot of people who 
wanted to know, can they make it through SEAL training? And that is a different beast than a person who says, I want to serve as a SEAL. Is that more pride where the second one is more, it's more me, this is more we, like I want to serve to represent and protect the red, white, and blue versus the other one is it's a test, let me see if I can handle it. Yeah, I think, I think there's something there that you just mentioned that's very accurate. Yeah, it's a personal test, it's an achievement. Will I wear a bird, a, a, a Budweiser, a SEAL Trident one day? That's very different from saying, hey, I want to stand shoulder to shoulder with the baddest guys I know who, who care yeah. about me and I want, to, I want to bring it on behalf of the nation, get in the fight with the bad guys. Yeah, two different motivations. Um, and, and it's a little bit like, you know, in the finance arena. Who wants to take and pass the Series 7 or the 63? Who wants to take care of their clients, find the right product, help them in their financial future? Um, so two different missions. Not mutually exclusive because you have to want to make it through SEAL training in order to stand shoulder to shoulder with your team. And obviously you guys want these guys. You want, you want the guys that want to be a SEAL. Correct. So th th was there a formula for it? Did, did they figure out a formula that was best suited on who to focus on? We, we tracked the population where you really get an indication of, you know, those, let's look at those 37 guys from my class, for example, who made it through Hell Week. Let's find out what their family backgrounds are. Let's find out what their sports backgrounds are. Let's find out, if we can, a little bit of their, their psych, you know, what, what drives them. And so what, what region they're from, how old were they in training, what's their level of education. So as we did this internal look, more SEALs come from a background of football, baseball, and basketball than other sports. But football, for example, has about the lowest success rate of any sports, meaning numerically, mass numbers, tons of SEALs have played football. But the success rate of athletes going through training really is, uh, is it's, it's lacrosse, water polo, cross-country track, wrestling. Those um, did well, football didn't do well. Football statistically doesn't do well. The number one sport is triathlon. Not a lot of 18, 19, 23-year-old men are, are competing in triathlon, but those that do know how to, how to work in a way where you're having to shift from one sport to another. Very interesting. Performance count. Let me ask you this. You know, when I was in the military, a friend of mine went, and he became Delta, right? And most people, if you talk to them, you say Navy SEAL, they know. But most people you talk about Delta, they don't really know. The only way they know Delta is the movie that was done. Also, another movie was Delta. I don't know who played it. Chuck Norris, I think. Chuck Norris played Delta mm -hmm. Force, yes. And, uh, but Delta, they intentionally want to be low-key and they don't want to tell anybody what. They'll typically say they're, they're special ops, but the average person doesn't know what special ops means. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. They're not going to say, I'm Delta Force. They'll say, mm -hmm. I'm special ops. What's special mm -hmm. ops? I work on special operations. Now, you and I know what special ops is, but you know, the average guy doesn't know what special ops is. Why, why is, is Navy SEAL, the brand, comfortable being that public uh, uh, where Delta isn't being public? Is the game plan and strategy to be comfortable being public, or is that a smart move that they're making? There's a lot of, lot of great questions there. You know, um, and, I, and I can't speak to the Tier 1 side, so I've not been a Tier 1 operator, whether it's on the Naval Special Warfare side or the Army side, um, but their mission is one that should absolutely remain in the shadows. The notion for us, you know, is to really not trivialize any organization. Um, we have a message to attract in our arena as SEALs, back when I served, and I'm speaking as Duncan, not as an official Navy representative. Um, you know, our mission was to bring in the right guys on board who are today the most physically fit candidates we've ever had. They do have a better understanding of what SEAL training is. There's some who'd argue that you're, you're losing 
some of the benefit of putting people in in real chaos when you know when they know what's coming up next because it's been written about in books or on a on a miniseries. You know, th there is some detriment there, but. Um, when we began in 2005 with the, the SEAL Recruiting Directorate, um, at that point in time, our research had told us that um, of the bulk of those guys who made it through SEAL training, first talk to an Army recruiter or a Marine Corps recruiter. We were classically their third choice. Um, today, it's reversed. So putting the word out has now made it that young men come in with an understanding that they want to be a maritime commando, an aquatic warrior. They will come in seeking first to be a SEAL. So we, to attain the numbers we needed, and by the way, those efforts that included things like the film Act of Valor, which, which I, I produced from the Navy's perspective, worked on for two years, two and a half years, um, those kind of efforts, like the Ironman, like Act of Valor, like putting former SEALs out there as coaches, allowed us to fill our first class ever in our history in 2007. And now we're full back to back to back. So it's, so it's easy to say, you guys were overexposed, and we absolutely are. We kind of learned from the best. There was the movie Green Berets, which um, you know, inspired a lot of folks to want to wanna earn that opportunity to serve as a Special Forces operator in the Army. Now look at the Navy's experience. We have the most professional Navy in the world, the most technically sophisticated surface warfare, subsurface warfare, aviation sailors the world has ever seen. But the reality is, being an air crewman, or being on a ship and repairing machinery or working navigation or combat systems doesn't really translate well to being a SEAL. So if you use Pareto's law, you know... 80-20. 80-20, yeah. we, are, we are the direct opposite of the Army Special Forces, which is why we're not in competition. We get 80% of our candidates off the street. And then 20% really? from the fleet. And really? frankly, the fleet success rates um, don't always eighty percent off. Don't the always uh, shine. Why do you think that is? Why do you think they don't shine if it's coming from uh, what you already have? Because I think it's it's a population doing a very demanding job, whether they're a um, intelligence specialist or an aviation boatswain's mate. But the reality is, it being on a ship for two three years does not train you well for you know fourteen mile runs, four mile ocean swims, you know twenty pull ups every time you have a meal or you don't eat. Um, it's, it's not the same training environment, where being an Army infantryman trains you pretty well for the Special Forces Q course. Let's transition to a couple other topics here. Mm -hmm. You know, I watched a movie the other day. Mar, you told me to go watch a movie, Angel Has Fallen. Is that what it's called, Angel Has Fallen? Yeah. Yeah. And there is this scene where he's with Morgan Freeman, and he starts seeing some stuff in the sky. And he sees literally hundreds and hundreds of drones coming, okay? So he's looking at it, and then all of a sudden these drones come, and the moment anything shoots at it, or there is movement, it goes right at it. So if you shoot at it, then all of a sudden 20 of them come after you. And every, every mm. one of them is a bomb, and they blow up, right? Mm. And uh, I'm watching that, I'm like, that is way too realistic. Way too realistic. Then I said to myself, what is the biggest threat we have today? Because what are your biggest threats? What is the Navy SEAL looking at right now around the world as a bigger? Because a threat in 1985 is not the same threat as the, in 2018. What are some of the biggest threats we have uh, based on what you see yourself? Well, a couple things. Um, and I can't speak for the Navy in terms of where the threats lie. But I will tell you that the technological advancements that have gone on just in the limited time that I was in, you know, it's like, it's like uh, Moore's Law, right? I mean, when I joined the SEAL teams, and you would train at SEAL Team 1 in 1986 to go overseas, 
you weren't wearing hearing protection or earplugs because the Vietnam guy training next to you said, hey man, no one wears earplugs in combat. Toughness. Get, get used to this. Yeah. Right. You'd have a canteen and basically you'd open your canteen, you'd take a sip and you'd pass around the squad until it was completely empty because a half full canteen sloshes. Um, but if you had a, a new fancy thing called a camelback with a, you know, a drinking bladder, oh, you know, what's that piece of gear? Get that out of here. Night vision didn't exist. Guys would go into a, a PLO, a patrol leader's order, a mission briefing, wearing sunglasses to preserve their night vision. Not every guy, but a lot of guys would try to do that. Well, now we have technology that's you know, night vision goggles, and, and we, we embrace all these things. We understand our bodies as weapons much better. The little bit of advancement, peltors, that allow you to muffle explosions and the sounds of gunfire, but still hear the person whispering next to you, those things have made a difference. But drone swarms and other things, I think we're just seeing the very, very beginning of technology, you know, technology advancing and changing the battle space. Are we space. prepared for it, though? I think it's going to evolve really quickly, and I think we've got a lot of near peers. You know, we've been focused, and again, Duncan's point of view, not a Navy point of view. We've been focused on some very, very dedicated combatants um, that we've been trying to counter, but they're not the most sophisticated technologically. And as we look at near peers, there's a whole new definition of what technological sophistication means, especially when you look at some of the, the things in the, uh, the Pacific theater and, and moving out into uh, you know, the, the Taiwan, Philippines, Vietnam, China area. Do you really think the military can be growing at the same pace as all the threats are growing? Or is it constant preparation and you know, audibles according to what technology advancement's going? the speed of advancement's going? I think it's a little of both. I think some of it is responding to a new threat, so technology can kind of drive to meet those threats. But I also think there's organizations like DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, that is trying to anticipate how to increase the lethality, the value of different weapon systems, intelligence gathering systems. The notion of anonymity is disappearing for us, right? As citizens, when you buy an iPhone or you, you, yeah. you join social media, um, and, and I think you're correct, those laws that govern those things, both in terms of our participation and how our information is used, whether it's for commerce or, or the enemy's activities, um, those laws can understand you know, how these things are gonna evolve. Do you have kids? I do. Okay, so this is a good question to ask you. Having kids yourself, what is your biggest concern having access to the information that you've had the last 33 years? Well, just as a parent, Aside from the military side, you want your kids to, I want my kids to be happy, to have friends they care about, to, to have challenges in their lives that they feel they can address. I want them to grow. My sense, my concern for my kids is, um, you know, my concern for the, for the world at large. I think that we're going to see rapid economic evolution. Um, I don't know where we're going to be in terms of confronting a lot of the foreign policy challenges that we have, but they're really genuine, right? I mean you can look at yesterday's newspaper and suddenly realize you know, there's whole new theaters of operation that get, they get dicey. Um, so, I don't know, my concern is the same for my kids as it is for our nation and society at large. Uh, it, it, you know, the, the next question is uh, Osama bin Laden, when, when the Navy SEAL, you know, SEAL Team 6 uh, caught Osama bin Laden. Do you know why we chose the SEAL Team 6 to do a land uh, mission than choosing maybe a you know a special ops or Delta or somebody else to do it. Why why they go to SEAL Team Six over Delta? Do you know that story or no? I haven't served at SEAL Team Six or at Delta, but I can tell you that um, you know the sense is the Tier One side and conventional SEALs and Green Berets were out 
hitting it hard every day, multiple targets. Um, they were all very, very good at what they did. My understanding is that, hey, there's another mission over here and, and who's, who's lined up to go hit that one? I don't think it was necessarily um, choosing anyone specific, but I'm not the best person to, to address the actual final decision. Got it, but from what you know, it's not like, hey, we think these guys will be better than these guys. Sometimes it has to do with availability, sometimes it has to do with all that other stuff, right? Or Yeah, the guys I know who were, who were involved in that have basically said this was like a lot of other missions that they'd taken part in multiple times. Got in it. In a lot of ways. Here's from the civilian standpoint, mm -hmm. okay? This is my, um, uh, me being born and raised in Iran and being overly skeptical, you know, I'm the guy that, you know, hey, you know, this thing's gonna do very well in the stock market, you should look at this investment. I'm the skeptic guy, I'm the natural Middle Eastern skeptic, you know, uh, uh, when everything first comes up, I wanna know every, everything about it before I jump to a conclusion. It's, it's very hard to believe, and I'm, I'm expecting a very diplomatic answer from you. But I'm trying to see what you're going to say. I'm okay. going to test it anyways, and we'll All see right. what you're going to say. Duncan, it's very hard for me to believe you catch, not you, Navy SEAL, T SEAL Team 6, catches Osama bin Laden. They post the pictures. 24 hours later, they bury him in the middle of the ocean. And that's it. It is so... I'm not a conspiracy guy. You, you follow by Tim. I don't have a lot of stuff where I go back. The only thing we do is we'll do JFK assassination and we'll have some guests that come and talk about it because I'm just curious about that topic. But this isn't a conspiracy YouTube channel. It's not like we're going to do conspiracy. We talk about business, entrepreneurship, money, all that stuff. But this is kind of linked to me because, you know, a big part of uh, what uh, uh, ISIS and a lot of these guys came about has to do with 1978, uh, 79 with the whole uh, uh, Jimmy Carter and you know, you have too many political prisoners, Reza Shah, Muhammad Reza Pahlavi, you got to let him go, and there's 3,000 political prisoners. Finally, they let him out, and they end up creating all these different organizations. So, you know, similar to what happened with Cuba when Jimmy Carter kind of made them go through the whole thing, and eventually Castro said, go for it. Here's the Muriel Boatlift. He sent 125,000 prisoners to Miami. Next year's unemployment in Miami went to 50%, and gas stations were shut down. People were concerned Miami became a tough place to live because Castro played Carter, and then Carter doesn't get reelected. Reagan wins 49 out of 50 states, which is the time you became a broker because at that time, you know, CDs were paying out 13%, but inflation, you know, these were terrible times. The market was very funny. But it's very hard for me to believe. Yeah, we caught bin Laden. We just dropped him in the middle of the ocean. How do you process that? Well, I am going to give you a politically correct answer, you know, a figured, diplomatic yeah. answer. You know, wasn't on the mission, um, but uh, I have a lot of respect for, in particular, Admiral McRaven, who led that mission. Uh, from he's got from, a strong reputation. He's an amazing guy. Yeah. I've, I've worked when he was in 05 at uh, SEAL Team Three, and I was a reservist. I would come in and serve as his executive officer. So basically, um, there's in any command, there's commanding officer, an executive officer, and then a command master chief. So when his executive officer would go serve on a board or selection panel or, or had a mission out of the area, um, I would often fill in and got to know him fairly well. And he's, he's a pretty credible, smart person, but he's beyond that just an, an unbelievable leader. And um, uh, I've stayed in touch with him. And, and I put a lot of credibility in, in the way things were described as having taken place. Um, but I can't comment further because, again, I wasn't there, nor if I was, I wouldn't be able to, to talk about it. But I do think that there's a, uh, 
there's a pretty reputable guy leading that mission and what he has described, I, I do buy. You know why I don't buy it? Here's why I don't buy it. And by the way, I, res- I respect your answer. And, and like I said, McCraven, I've sat with McChrystal. I've sat with a lot of, a lot of mm-hmm. a, a solid generals, people that have a lot of respect. I'm a Mattis guy. I think Mattis is a, a solid leader from his unit, you know. But uh, I've heard great things about him. But here's how I process it. Okay. Why would I drop him? Why would I even disclose to the world what I'm doing with that part? Is that really a good military move? Is that re- and I'm not expecting an answer from you. Is that, really mm-hmm. a, is that really a good political move to say, hey, we dropped him in the ocean. Here's what we did. Would somebody from the top make a phone call to say, let's take him over here? You know, because the pictures don't match at all. So strategically for me, anybody can Photoshop nowadays. It's not really, it's a complicated thing. But would I really drop the guy there? I don't know. Would I really want the world to know I'm doing that? I don't know. It is very, very difficult to believe that that happened. Again, I'm not expecting an answer from you. And by the way, here's the other part with me. I'm also not, I know there's some controversy in the Navy SEAL side. I have no interest to go that direction with you because in order to speak on behalf of the life of a Navy SEAL agent, you have to understand the, the challenges they face mentally, emotionally, away from family. I'm not here to go that direction or comment on it. I am not saying it's the right decision or the wrong decision to sell the fact that we really dropped them. All I'm saying is I'm hoping they didn't and there's a different strategy and they're just kind of telling us, hey, real quick, here's what we did and boom, we went a different direction. Not expecting an answer or rebuttal from you, but it's very hard for me to believe that. And this is coming from a guy that's 101st Airborne. I'm pro-USA. I'm pro-military. I'm pro-anybody that serves. I got the level of respect for folks like you put 33 years of your life into. You have no idea how much respect I got for anybody that's playing in your role. But I just kind of wanted to share that. You know, I, I'm not expecting any kind of an answer back. I don't think strategically it makes sense to drop him in the middle of the ocean. But it is what it is. But Craven knows more than I do. That's why he gets hired to do his job. I just sell insurance and build businesses, man. I'm a whole simple guy here. Let me go to the next one here. I'm curious on what you're going to say about this. This one I don't really have an opinion about. I'm just curious on what, you, what sure. your thoughts are on this. You're hearing a lot of things with, you know, Area 51, Area 51, Area 51, Area 51, Area 51, you know, aliens, all this other stuff. Hey, show us what's Area 51. Do you think it, the government is, should, like, let's just say there is. Do you think the government should keep something away from us where none of us should really know what is in Area 51? Like, how do you process that part of yourself? Because people know Area 51, oh, it's right out of this. If you go exit, it's this many miles inside. Do you think the government should have the right to have access to certain information that we shouldn't know about? I think if you train to the unanticipated but, but possible in the future, whether it's a military organization or, or in terms of aircraft technology, I don't think everything needs to be publicized all the time. And, and I think oftentimes, you know, we train our competition um, when we make obvious, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, low cavitation submarine propellers. You know, there's a real science around that. Um, you don't want the world necessarily knowing what technological advances you've made if it gives you a competitive edge in, in maintaining freedom of the seas. Um, are there things similar to our having developed low cavitation propellers on submarines back in the 60s and 70s today? I'd be amazed if there weren't, but I think a lot of that technology that gives us an edge on the battlefield um, is, is probably uh, best kept under wraps for now. Um, that's, 
That's my personal sense. I would want the people I know, I, don't, I no longer serve, but I'd want the people I know who are serving to have the capability to have a leg up on the enemy when they're on the battlefield. I don't think the public needs to know everything, but that's, again, my opinion, not an official Navy opinion. I, I kind of agree as well. You know, I, I don't know if, look, I'm, I'm here, obviously, freedom of speech all day. If the, in Iran, for me to come and do the episodes that I do, it mm -hmm. would last half a day. They'd mm -hmm. come, they shut down, take everything out, and I'd be in a whole different room. You can't talk about a lot of things freely, right? You know, freedom of speech big, freedom of press big, freedom a lot of this stuff is big. But, uh, you know, sometimes it, it, TMI is, is giving way too much information for the enemy to know what moves to make next. Make next. You almost, the, the whole art of war uh, deceive your enemy. You, you almost can't do that with having this much information with the media being accessible to the enemy. Because if I'm the enemy, what am I watching? Watch the news. Watch mm -hmm. what U.S. Watch whoever hates Trump the most, I'm watching that. Whoever hates Obama the most when he's president, I'm watching that. Why? I'm going to get access to information because they have that. So, you know, it, it, it serves us and it also hurts us sometimes if the enemy has way too much information about what's going on. Funny question for you. Do you believe uh, aliens exist? Like, do you think we've ever had aliens? What do you think? Yeah, you know, it's that? a great question. I remember being a, a seven-year-old camping, looking up at the sky. And numerically, I think it's almost scientifically arrogant for us to think that we are the one sort of chemical miracle in the universe. So I would, I would have to say, and I've not had an experience that proves this, but I would be very surprised if there's not other life forms out there, some less developed than us and some more developed than us on other, other uh, celestial bodies. Um, and do they, do they travel and do other things? I'd, I don't know, but I'd be amazed if there wasn't such a thing. Is, what's, what's your sense for that? I mean, it's a math question, right? I, I don't have the answer to it. Yeah. Like if somebody, I sit down and talk to somebody who, the debate is a faith debate. One of my friends is hardcore math guy, like so analytical. It's unbelievably uh, uh, fascinating to have a conversation with this guy. So I took a guy who's a very strong debate guy as well, and I sat him down together at his restaurant, and they just went at it for two hours. I wish we would have recorded. It was pure entertainment mm -hmm. to watch these guys go at it. But... You know, for somebody to say, I 100% believe there is God. Okay, faith is what? Believing in something you have not yet seen, right? Okay. Then I see the complete opposite of the debate. I see this atheist goes against this guy, uh, and he's a Christian, and they debate. And he says, I'm 100% God does not exist. Okay? And the guy asks him a question, brilliant question. He says, let me ask you this. He says, what's that? I said, you have a degree from Oxford, yes, yes. You have a degree from Harvard, yes, yes. You have a degree, you, got, you went also Yale, you're, yes. Out of all the information in the world, how much of it do you think you know? What percentage? So the guy says, probably 25%. Yeah, that's a lot. You can you think, imagine that's somebody saying, pretty confident that's guy. pretty confident yeah. guy to say 25%. So he says, 25%. So this guy's like, okay, fair enough. Let's just say you know 25%. He says, yes. He says, is it fair to assume that the answer to their possibly being God is in the 75% of the information you don't know, and the guy's stuck. He says, mm -hmm. maybe. I said, so you can't say 100% God doesn't exist, and you can't say 100% God exists. I would be on the same page with you because it's a mathematical answer. It's arrogant for us to say it doesn't exist. I mean, I, how much access do we have out there to go out there and say we have and we have not? Um, 
But yeah, I would be on the same page with you if it exists or if it doesn't. You know, no, no one knows. Maybe they got some kind of internet we don't have, and they're 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 uh, experiencing things we don't even know. Maybe we're a project for them. You know, they're just kind of watching us and what are these guys up to? It could it could go either way. Yeah, it could be that we're so far advanced beyond what they could conceive of, or yeah, exactly. They could be literally light years ahead of us. I, I wonder. Uh, do you subscribe to the mindset of? too much advancement could be eventually Armageddon and the end of the world? Like, are we going to eventually get to the point, you know, uh, World yeah. War One and Two may be this, but World War Three, you know? It'd be interesting to, to touch base on what you talked about earlier. You know, are there other beings out there? Um, granted, it's, it's fodder for science fiction novels, but you do wonder what our relationship would be like with people that we now view as adversaries if there was some other presence, com- presence coming from another outside uh, arena another planet or solar system. Would we all draw together and suddenly view certain things don't matter quite so much? I don't know. Last question for you before we wrap up. Mm -hmm. Uh, I speak to a lot of these veterans that are transitioning out of the military. Mm -hmm. I went to the elite meet and I'm talking to these guys and here's stud of studs. Everybody in the room looks like you. Unemployed, don't know what to do next, anxiety, panic, they don't have the next steps for career-wise. Do you think the military is doing a good job today transitioning people out? And if there are ways to improve that, what can we do to improve the transitioning out of veterans? Um, I think that um, every veteran has to listen to himself. We're all individuals, even though we're often classified by the general public as you know, kind of cookie-cutter, you know, well, we're all the same, and, and we're really vastly different. But I think everyone's got to kind of look at where they are. A lot of my teammates, guys I knew well, would try to get right into the heart of Silicon Valley or get right with you know the premier investment banks in New York. And for me, I, I took a breath. And what I did was I wanted to become a kayak guide, which kayaking's my thing. And I interviewed with three companies up in the Pacific Northwest. All three gave me offers. But why would you want to do this? I said, because this is, this is what I want to be doing going forward. I'll punctuate everything else around this, but my first job was three months as a, taking people out guiding on islands between Canada and, and, uh, and Washington State and out and among the orcas. My point is, I listened to myself and I gave myself time to breathe. After spending that summer, I then started consulting with a private equity firm. I started doing a lot of other corporate consulting work um, and I found my stride. I would encourage every veteran getting out to understand his self or herself as best they can. Find your stride. Don't, don't languish, don't take forever, but figure out what makes sense for you and, and what trips your trigger. What I'm excited to see, I was talking today to some folks from, from T-Mobile, which has a huge veteran arm. They're, they're trying to, to hire veteran spouses. They're trying to grow and, and build. Um, what they're doing and what I'm starting to see in a lot of other places is veterans mentoring veterans. So there's this sense that when you're a veteran, you're gonna be out there alone, the only person in that company or that organization who is a veteran, the only person who, who's been shot at or can understand what it's like to wait for you know, rockets to come into the compound. And the reality is, um, today we're fortunate in that there are people in a lot of companies, and I know you've hired veterans as well, mm-hmm. um, who've been there one, two, three, six years who are ready to welcome the incoming veterans. So I would say that Veterans should prepare themselves to be mentored by whoever they're working closely with. But if you're a veteran in an organization and you found your stride, uh, really welcome those people who are leaving the service. I think, I, like that. I think we all know about the work ethic and other things. Oh yeah. 
Um, but but be ready to be mentored and then very quickly learn to mentor someone else who comes in for like the race. That. Where can people find you? Are you active on social media or you're not really active on social media? Is there a website? Is there anything people can find you on? I'm not a big social media guy. Um, you know, to be honest with you, I, uh, uh, and, and some of that's, I guess, by design. I wish I had the perfect answer for you. Um, if they want to come up kayaking in the San Juan Islands uh, out among the orcas, um, I'd be honored to do that. Um, I'm working with an organization called Outdoor Odysseys up there. Um, through that organization, I've taken out Gold Star spouses, women who've lost their spouses in combat. Um, I've taken out veteran groups. Some of those I just volunteer for to take them out there. Um, so if they want to come out and do that, I'd uh, be happy Beautiful. to uh, take them. This went a whole different direction, but I really enjoyed the conversation we had here today. I appreciate you coming out. Uh, again, thank you for your service. Really, thank you for your service and uh, appreciate the time. My pleasure, Pat. Thank you for having me and Anytime. thank you for your service. Anytime. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bid-David. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.